If you've got a Bible, open to Ruth. The book of Ruth, chapter one, starting a new series this weekend um, through the book of Ruth for the next couple of months, taking a look at that story there tucked away in the Old Testament. If you have a hard time finding it, if you find First Samuel, go backwards. If you find Judges, go forwards. It's sandwiched between those two books there in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth, a series of messages entitled Our Redeemer, uh, working our way through this book and seeing what God has to say to us as a church, as a people, and as individuals uh, through his word. Uh, if, you don't have, if you hadn't found it yet or can't find it or you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen for me as we read it together. Ruth chapter one, beginning in verse one, says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the hill country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died. So that woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, I did a little research, and last year in 2016, Americans spent $11,369,619,384 at the box office to sit and soak in stories. Because we're, we love stories, don't you? Don't we? You, you love stories, don't you? I love stories, right? Stories compel us. Stories captivate us. Stories draw us in. They sometimes inspire or motivate us. At times, stories can frustrate us. As stories, sometimes stories can reframe the way that we view reality and the way that we live because stories carry truth oftentimes, don't they? Right? It's not just something for mere entertainment. Oftentimes there's a point behind all of the words that are written on a page or behind all of the scenes that are shot and captured in a film. We love stories. And the book of Ruth is a story. It's a story. And the book of Ruth is a story that's, and, and I hate to disappoint you because some of you are like, man, you get to chapter three and she goes into the threshing floor, uncovers his feet, lays down, something goes down there. Like this book of Ruth is not a steamy romance novel, okay? That's not what we're getting into here. The book of Ruth also isn't a romantic comedy, right? It's not like these two people meet in Bethlehem in a coffee shop one day and they have a passing glance, they catch each other's eye and they show up to the same place over and over and over again, hoping to run into each other and then they begin to talk for hours on end in that little coffee shop and they share life stories and dreams and visions and one day they end up getting married, right? That's not the book of Ruth. There is a marriage in the book of Ruth, but it is not a romantic comedy. Rather, the book of Ruth is a story that in which is couched theology. Now, when I say the word theology, some of you are going, man, that's just dusty, dry stuff reserved for the shelves of seminary and college, Bible college libraries. But th- when, you, when, when you think of theology, you can think of theology in two, two broad classifications. You've got theology proper, things that are true about God, things about his essence, about his nature, about his character. But you also have practical theology. In other words, the way these things that are true about God and about us work themselves out in life. How they intersect with the way that we live and where we live. And the book of Ruth is a story in which it's couched 
so much practical theology about who God is, who we are, how he interacts with us as his creatures, those that he has created. Ruth is a work of practical theology that demonstrates how this God of our confession conducts himself in our affairs. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever looked at the headlines. There's lots of headlines right now, aren't there? Uh, lots, of, lots of news feeds that you could take a look at. And if you ever look at the headlines and go, man, where is God in the midst of this? You ever ask yourself that question? You ever look at all the stories unfolding in the news around you and say, where is God in the midst of this? In the midst of white supremacy and nuclear threats from North Korea? Where is God in the midst of racism and injustice? Where is God in the midst of natural disasters, earthquakes enveloping whole towns, hurricanes blowing whole islands nearly off the map? Where is God in the midst of this? And sometimes we look at the headlines in our lives and we ask, where is God? Sometimes we look at the headlines not only in our land, but also personally in our lives and say, where is God in the midst of my struggling marriage? Where is God in the midst of my uncertainty about my future and my job loss and all the transition and change? Where is God in the midst of my difficulty with my kids? Where is God in the midst of my diagnosis and treatment? Where is God in the midst of my financial struggles? Sometimes we look at the headlines in our land or in our lives and we say, where is God? And if you've ever asked that question, I want you to know something. The book of Ruth is for you. It's for you. Some of you go, how's a story from way back in the day, right? Gonna be relevant and pertinent in my life today. If you've ever asked the question, where is God in the midst of all this? Ruth is a story for you. Because Ruth tells us that God is moving towards us in tenderness. He's moving towards us in mercy. He's moving towards us in love and in grace. He's moving towards us, even in the midst of all of our personal and all of the public upheaval that we experience in this life. Even, listen, church, even the upheaval caused by your own choices that God is still moving towards you in grace and compassion and tenderness and mercy. He's still moving towards you. Ruth is a beautiful story of redemption, but it's set against a very dark backdrop of personal and public rebellion. Ruth is an amazing story of God's providence set against the backdrop of human perversion. It's a story of the loyal, faithful, kind, covenant-keeping love of God demonstrated to individuals through human actions in a day in which God's people were anything but loyal, anything but loving, anything but kind, anything but faithful, right? Because the story of Ruth has a setting, it has a context, It's not isolated or in a vacuum. And sometimes, you know this to be true, sometimes in order to understand a story, you gotta know the backstory, right? You gotta know a little bit of the context. So let me take a few moments this morning to set it up for you, because the author does for us at the very outset when he writes these seven words, in the days that the judges ruled. Now there's a whole series of sermons in those words right there alone. Right? The days of the judges in Israel's history, uh, the, the period was roughly from 1200 to 1020 BC. And it was a time between the conquest of the land under Joshua and the coronation of Saul as king. Right? It was that span of history. The period was characterized by these repetitive cycles of rebellion and repentance and God's rescue and then rest and then rebellion and then repentance and then God's rescue and then rest. Over and over again, the people of God looked at their covenant Lord who had rescued them out of slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt and said, you know what? 
thanks, but we're gonna go try our own way over here, right? And so they would turn from God to the gods of the other nations, and God said, okay, you wanna worship these little g-gods, the idols, the gods of the nations, why don't you just be ruled by their kings and under their control as well? And so God would raise up other nations to come in and conquer and occupy, and at times oppress his people. And the people, when they got tired of that, they would cry out to God in repentance, and God would raise up a deliverer, and he would send the deliverer to rescue them, and they would reestablish rest in the land once again. So this, you had this cycle playing out over and over and over again during this period of Israel's history. So these are the days of the judges. Now, during this period, there was no centralized government in Israel, so there was no king in Jerusalem, but you had these local tribal chieftains, so the 12 tribes were scattered to different parts of the land, and you had these tribal leaders or rulers known as judges. Now, when you think of judges, here's what I, I, I want you to think of. They're, they're, not, they're not like what we would think of. They're not appointed or elected. They don't have a gown, a gavel, or a bench, right? They're more like military leaders in Israel's day, Right? And so whenever you think of judges, they weren't weren't sitting there to dispute cases and resolve difficulties in in, in applying the law to particular individuals' circumstances. Rather, they were God-appointed and anointed leaders to deliver his people through military, oftentimes military conquest and action and pushing out the people who had oppressed them. And so when you think of judges, think less of like Judge Joe Brown, right, or Judge Judy, right, or even Neil Gorsuch, like the latest Supreme Court appointee, right, think less of them and more like Rambo or Jack Bauer, right? Those, those were the judges in Israel's day, all right? That's who the judges were. Consider a few of them. You had Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad's like a cattle prod, all right? It's a metal tip poker that you use to direct animals, and that dude picks it up and just knocks them down. Right? You also had a guy named Ehud, who was a left-handed, left-handed dude who drives his sword through the belly of King Eglon of Moab. Now, Eglon was a big man, all right? And so as he drove the sword into Eglon's belly, the text tells us uh, that the, he, the Eglon was so big that his, the, the hilt of his sword got swallowed in his fat rolls, right? That's, e, that's Ehud. You also had Deborah and Barak. You had a prophetess and a general who delivered the people from the Canaanites with the assistance of a lady named Jael. Now, Jael was generations removed from but still related to Moses' father-in-law. And whenever Barak rallied his troops and routed the Canaanites, the Canaanites fled and their general Sisera fled and found refuge in Jael's tent. He comes in and says, look, they're, they're hot on my heels. Give me some quarter and refuge. Protect me here. So she said, come on in, right? And he comes in, he lays down to rest. She gives him a little bit of warm milk to make sure he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, she picks up a tent peg and a hammer and she drives it through his temple, pinning him to the ground and killing him. And when Barack finally gets there, she's like, hey, the guy you're looking for, I just took care of him, he's right here. And you had Samson, pretty tortured soul, okay? Right, he, he, he was probably, the, the, of, of all the judges, probably the one with the least amount of character that God used to deliver his people, but he, at the end of his life, he collapses the temple of the Philistines upon 3,000 men who were gathered there that day in worship and upon himself. These are the judges. These are the judges, and they were ruling in these days in Israel. And so the days of the judges, listen, they were a dark, dark period in Israel's history. They were a depraved period in Israel's history because there was no moral compass for people in their lives and there was no unifying or compelling vision for life under God's redemptive rule. So people weren't responding and acknowledging God. 
And so you get to the end of the book, and let me just run it down for you real quick. In Judges chapter 17, listen to how bad things have gotten. So you got Micah, this guy named Micah, who steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom, right? He takes all the money, finally his conscience gets, catches up to him, he cops to it, tells his mom, gives the money back. She takes 200 pieces of that silver and gives it to a silversmith to, to, to do an overlay on a carved image, to make a little household God. And Micah takes that household God and it becomes his own household religion. He takes his son, ordains his son as the priest of his household to serve this household God. And then a Levite happens to wander into Micah's purview, right? Now the Levites were from the tribe of Levi, okay? And they had priestly duties in the Old Testament to serve either in the tabernacle at that time or the temple at some point in the future. So a Levite wanders in and Micah says, hey, listen, you're looking for a place to stay. I got a place for you. You come live with me. I'll pay you 10 pieces of silver a year. I'll provide your food. I'll provide your your clothing. I'll provide your lodging. And the Levite agrees. And so Micah takes him, ordains him as a priest in his own household religion along with his son. And then the text in Judges chapter 17 says this, that Micah thinks to himself, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest in my own household religion. Doesn't sound a whole lot different from the day when people say things like, I know the Bible says, but, like, don't give me, like, I can't even get started on that because we won't finish, right? So, but the the, the people of of God are creating their own household religions and turning away from God and setting up idols and graven images to worship. In Judges 19, you have another Levite, another man with priestly function and office in the nation's history who took, a, listen to this, he took another man's wife as his own concubine. Like, you don't need her, so I'll take her with me. Right, and so as he travels through the hill country of Ephraim, he doesn't want to turn aside and stay in a city of, occupied by foreigners. He wants to go on to Gibeah because the tribe of Benjamin is there. It's like, those are my people, they're gonna open up their doors, it's gonna be like a big family reunion, and we're just gonna party all night long. Right, and so he shows up in Gibeah, and no one would welcome him into their home. No one would receive him with hospitality. And so the man ends up sitting in the town square with his concubine and his traveling party and his animals as night fell. Then an old man comes in from the fields. He's done with his daily duties at work. He comes in from the fields, and the first thing that he says when he sees this Levite sitting there with his concubines, look, listen, whatever you do, do not stay here in the middle of town tonight. Right? Come to my house. I will put you up. I will feed you and, and, and make sure you, that you have a place to stay. So the man welcomes the Levite and his concubine into his home. So they get there. They're eating. They're drinking. They're catching up, telling stories, right? Talking about life. And all of a sudden, there's banging on the door because the men of the city had surrounded the house and they were banging on the door saying, bring out the man who has come to stay in your home that we may know him. Now, that doesn't mean bring out the dude so we can sit and recline or eat some peanuts and share our life stories and get to know each other because I just really want to know where he's coming from and understand his perspectives and, and get, get an idea of his background, history, and family. That's not what they're saying. The word know is the same word used in Genesis when it said Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore him a son. The men of the city are banging on the door saying bring out this man so we can have sexual relations with him, so we can rape him, so we can abuse him. That's what they're wanting to do. Now the man of the household says, listen, don't do it, right? He says, that'd be a shameful thing for you to do. That's incredibly shameful, but I have an idea. Here's my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me send them to you. Take them, violate them, abuse them, do whatever you will with them all night long. Only don't touch this man. 
Well, before the crowd can knock the door down, the man takes his concubine, shoves her out the door. The crowd takes her, rapes her, abuses her, and beats her all night long until the, until the sun is rising on the horizon and she is thrown back down at the doorstep of the home at which her, her, her whatever he was, was staying. And as he, the text leads us to believe that as he walked out the door in the morning, as he looked down at her, he kind of nudged her with his foot and said, get up, let's get going. And she couldn't. And so he takes her, he puts her on his donkey and he brings her back home. And when he gets home, he takes her body, dismembers it into 12 pieces and sends one to every tribe in Israel saying, has such a thing like this ever been seen? Now this incident incites a civil war in Judges chapter 20 between the tribes. The tribes who were supposed to be driving out the people from the land are now fighting with each other. So they're fighting internally. And that civil war leads to the near destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. And so in Judges chapter 21, because all of their young women had been slaughtered in the war, in Judges chapter 21, the elders of the tribes get together, the spiritual leaders of the tribes get together and they say, how are we gonna keep Benjamin from being erased off the face of the earth? How are we gonna provide wives for the young men? Here's our plan, it's a great plan. Let's go kidnap the daughters of Shiloh and bring them and give them to the young men of Benjamin for wives so that the tribe of Benjamin can continue. And when the husbands and, or the, the, the fathers and the brothers come to complain to us, we'll say, listen man, we showed you some grace because we didn't kill you to take them. Right, these are the days of the judges. Very dark, very depraved period in Israel's history. These are the days of the judges in which the judges ruled. And the book of the judges ends with this refrain. It's repeated several times in the book. It says, in those days, in Judges 21, 25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's not just a statement about there being no king on the throne in Jerusalem. That's a statement about the people refusing to acknowledge God's kingship, his authority, his rule, and governing their lives. And so they did what seemed best to them. And before we, looking back through the, the annals of history, begin to heap too much judgment on those people, I want you to know that our day and age is not much different. Not only outside the church, but inside as well. One author said about those days in which the judges ruled about the problem in the lives of the people, he said this, he said to Yahweh, they would look in times of military crisis, but to Baal they would turn for success in agriculture. In other words, this is what he's saying, for, for them, Yahweh was useful in some things, but useless in others. He was useful for some things, but useless in others. And listen, we live in a day and time in which the problem, that problem still exists, not only outside but inside the church. See, we live in a day and time, as one author put it, um, he said it's not, it's not an exaggeration to say that the average Christian today sees religion primarily in terms of the help which God can give him or her in this world with a vague expectation for the world to come rather than as an active, creative relationship with God, a relationship which has implications for this life, but which is fulfilled in eternity. To put it crudely, he says, it is an attitude which regards God in terms of his usefulness, rather than as an object of adoration and love. In other words, God is my vendor, he's not my treasure. And listen, that takes two forms in our day. 
and maybe in your life. And the first one is this, it's hollow orthodoxy. Listen, we live in the Bible Belt, right? One of the, the buckle of the Bible Belt, okay? That, that from Georgia over to, to, to Texas, okay? We're here. And in Bible Belt Christianity, it, there's two forms of this in particular, of this God being useful but not beautiful, a vendor but not a treasure. And the first one's hollow orthodoxy because we, we think that God is useful for some things but useless for others, right? So God's useful to get me into heaven, Right? And so we rightly, rightly so, we emphasize, hey, repentance, faith, trust in Jesus. He's gonna save you. He's gonna bring you into his presence for all of eternity. But there are many people who walked an aisle, prayed a prayer at seven or five or 12 or even 26, and, and they, they, they self-identify as Christians. And for them, the usefulness of God in the arena of their life is the life to come, and the uselessness that they see in God is in the life that's here and now. There's no bearing that God has on my life. I'm just gonna go, I'll be there then, but now I get to kind of, kind, of, kind of orchestrate and govern my own life. I get to do what's right in my own eyes because there's no governing authority from this hollow orthodoxy. Yes, I believe in Jesus so I can get to heaven, but he has no bearing on my life today. The other side of that is not hollow orthodoxy, but prosperity teaching, which minimizes the then and there and says everything's coming here and now, right? Right? You're gonna get everything now. And God, when you say jump, God says how high. And God becomes a vendor to give you and dispense all of your goods and services and all of the, the, the achievements, accolades, all the possessions and prowess that you want today. And see, one of the ways to know, if you're, if you're sitting there going, man, you know what, I've, I've, I've maybe been a Christian for a long time, how do I discern whether or not I've, I'm looking at God as my vendor or if I'm looking at him as my treasure? And here's how. How do you respond to the cloudy days of God's providence in your life? Some of you have heard me talk about providence before, and that's when I said that it's the knot that's formed between the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. You bring those two threads of God's nature together and tie them in a knot, and that's providence, that God is directing the affairs of human history and your life, right, sovereignly governing you toward your good and his glory. That's providence. But providence, providence doesn't only, isn't only about sunny days and clear days, it's also stormy ones and cloudy ones. So let me ask you a question, if God, if, if God is your vendor, do you respond to him, how do you respond to him on cloudy days, on stormy days? See, if God's your vendor, what you do on stormy days, on clear days, you praise God, on sunny days, Jesus, yes! On cloudy days and stormy days, you accuse God because he's not giving the things that you want. He's not your object of worship and adoration. You cling to him in the midst of even the most difficult times that you start accusing him. On the flip side, some of us would know if God's our vendor if because on the cloudy days we run back to him, but on the sunny days we walk away from him because I got this, right? It's really calm right now in my life. I don't really need him. It's exactly how Israel responded to God in the days in which the judges ruled. When things got really difficult in certain areas of their life, they ran back to God, but whenever things settled down, they ran away from him. And that cycle happened over and over again. Now, I gotta, I gotta move, right? We could keep talking about this all morning, but there's more to get to. Because that's the, that's the, that's the backdrop for this story. 
right? The, 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 but the precipitating event that kind of drives the story forward is this, is that in those days there was a famine in the land. Now a famine, if, if you're looking at it from a theological perspective, a famine was not just a natural meteorological event that occurred or transpired because in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28 when Moses gives his farewell sermon to the people before he dies and they go into the land, he, in 28, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy he talks about the covenant blessings and curses and he says in there, Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse one. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Then down in verse 12 it says, the Lord will open to you his good treasury. What is that? The heavens. And what will he open from the heavens? To give rain to your land in its season so that the crops will would grow, they would flourish, the fields would be full and things would come to a harvest and you would be fed. But, you read further down in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15, it says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statute that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon and overtake you. And then in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, and the heavens over your head, they shall be bronze. And the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. If you rebel against God, Moses says, here's what's gonna happen. God's gonna shut the heavens. The sky's gonna become as bronze. Think about the color of bronze, right? Just this, this, this orangey kind of hue up there because there's clouds, there's no rain, there's no storms on the horizon to drop water onto the earth. He said the land underneath you will become like iron, it'll become so hard and crusty that nothing can flourish or grow. And he says the actual rain in your land, the only storms you're gonna have are dust storms because the rain will be like powder that just blows across the plateaus. And so it's not incidental that there's a famine in the land in this cycle of rebellion. This is God's disciplinary hand of judgment in the lives of his people. And the way the Hebrew says it is this, that the famine walked through the land, stalking and prowling. In other words, it moved from place to place to place until it enveloped the entire land, including Bethlehem. There's a lot of irony there because the word Bethlehem means house of bread, right? And in those days, even the house of bread had no bread, had no food, had no provisions because this famine had prowled and crept and stalked and consumed. And so one family's response to this pushes the story of Ruth forward. It's the story of a man who was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem and his family. We get their names in the story as well. It's Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion, their two sons. Right? And their names have significance as well because here's what you see in their names. Elimelech means this, my God is king. Somebody named him with a good name. <laughs> my God is king. His wife's name, Naomi, means pleasant. So here's what you got. My God is king and his pleasant wife and there are two sons which have Canaanite names, not Israelite names, Malon and Kilion. Right? One of them means sickly, the other one means weak. Right? Those are great names, right? Those of you who are expecting children, I would highly commend them to you. Okay? So you got these two children. 
And so what, what Elimelech's idea is this, right? He's living in a days in which there's no king in the land. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, including him. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, the prescription from God is not to run next door to look for rations when the famine comes, but to remain at home and repent and lead your family in repentance, turning away from sin and turning back to God because God promises that his grace would once again shower and rain down blessings. The fields would once again be full. The crops would once again come to harvest and your table would have food and your stomachs you would be fed. But instead of staying in the land of God's promise and trusting God's promises, here's what my God as king does. He lives as if his God is not king. A lot of irony there. And he takes his family and he moves to Moab. Now this was not a neutral decision, right? For some of us, we're like, man, I could move, I could serve God in New York, or I could serve God in New Orleans, right? I could serve God in Dallas or in Denver, in Tampa or Tacoma. Wherever I move, wherever God directs me, I could, I could go. But for, for Elimelech to leave the land of God's promise and God's people to go, and the text leads us to believe that he wasn't moving there permanently for citizenship. He just wants to go get a green card, get a job, eat some food until the famine is lifted, and then he can come back home and have food and be a part of the, the community once again. But that's not what God had prescribed, and particularly running to Moab. Moab had a long and sordid history with Israel. The Moabites came out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. The king of Moab, Eglon, was the one who just got the Ehud, jabbed his sword through his belly to free the Israelites from foreign oppression just just not many years before that. And this man's gonna go and sojourn there temporarily looking for blessing because he's coming from a place of emptiness. Listen, listen, some of you need, need to get this this morning. I need to get this this morning. I need to get this this morning. He's coming from a place of emptiness and what he's looking for is fullness, but he's looking for it outside of where God had prescribed to find it. And that brings me to my one and only point this morning. I got one. All that's introduction. (laughs) And here's the point. Choices have consequences. Choices have consequences. Look in verses three and following of Ruth chapter one. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Their choice to pursue fullness apart from the people and promises of God led them to a place of emptiness. They were pursuing blessing but what resulted was barrenness. Do you see that? Elimelech dies in a foreign land and is buried, which for the people of Israel was unthinkable. Her two sons die in a foreign land after being married to foreign wives for 10 years and God did not open their wombs. See, some of you might be going, man, man, be a little sympathetic to the dude, right? He's just looking to feed his family. But the way that the author 
tells the story here, if you understand the backdrop of the Old Testament, it does not lead you to a neutral position that this is God's hand turning against his people for running and rebelling. That the man of the family is dead and in a foreign land and a grave. So are his two sons. There's no heirs or offspring and Naomi is left bleak, broken, bereft, and barren. Because choices have consequences. See, listen, Naomi, she, the book is titled Ruth, but it's really the story of Naomi. Because she finds herself cut off from her people, cut off from her husband, cut off from her children, with no heir and no offspring, and no options for her provision were on the table. Listen, because, listen, I'm not saying this is the way that it should be, I'm just telling you how it was, all right? She was a woman in a very patriarchal, male-dominated society. And she was an old woman in a very patriarchal, male-dominated society. Her age and passage of time in the story means that her parents are dead and she cannot return to their home like a young widow could. Like she even encourages Orpah and Ruth to go do. Right, so that's not an option for her. She can't go home. Remarriage is off the table because of her age. Some of you are like, well, that's offensive. But listen, marriage in that day was not marriage in our day. In our day, we marry marry for romance and companionship and sex, oftentimes. But in that day, marriage wasn't about any of those things, it was about family. It was about offspring, it was about heirs, it was about children. And she was past childbearing years, so no man's gonna marry her because she can't provide a family for him. So she can't get remarried. She can't support herself with a trade because she has no training because women in her culture simply didn't do that. She has no family land to return to because her husband foolishly led her away from that and it was probably consumed and gobbled up by someone else and we find out that it was because they're gonna have to have somebody redeem it. So she has no land to go back to. She can't go work in the fields because she's, she's, she's too old to go work in the fields. She has no children or grandchildren to take care of her in her old age. She is utterly and absolutely alone. That's the position that she finds herself in. In addition, consider this, it is the days of the judges. And if she went back home, even though God's law had prescribed special provisions for widows in those days, (laughs) good luck. Good luck at finding someone who would actually honor God's prescription. And so she's left in a place of barrenness, seeking fullness, coming with finding, discovering only emptiness because choices have consequences. And here's what you need to understand this morning and I need to understand is that it still works that way today. See, some of us have experienced this before in our own lives. Whenever things get tight and things get difficult and they get hard, what we typically do is we turn from God and we try and provide for ourselves as opposed to turning to him in repentance or turning to him in trust, turning to him and throwing ourselves on his promises and pleading for his grace and for his provision. We go, you know what? I gotta dust myself off, pull myself up by my bootstraps and go get it done. 
And oftentimes, what we end up doing is we find ourselves in a place of emptiness and we go looking for fullness, but we find our, put ourselves in positions where the blessing we thought we would receive only comes back to us in barrenness. That's all we, and and then we, we taste it, we experience it, we feel it when we go looking for it outside of God's prescription. Some of you have tasted that, right, financially. Some of you thought, man, things are really tight, things are really difficult, money's tight. I, if, I, if I just maybe skim a little bit, right, for my employer, if I just maybe pull out some of, um, of, of, you know, maybe fudge a little bit on my taxes and I get a little bit more money back, right, and so you, so you begin to kind of compromise in all these small areas because you feel like you're, you're empty, you need to be full, and fullness is having possessions, having wealth, having monetary stability and security, and so you begin to cut corners and do things and seek that fullness outside of what God's prescribed, and what happens? What happens is you find yourself to be empty because you find yourself either now facing owing the government a whole lot of money when they finally find out, or you find yourself racking up thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of credit card debt that now you are under, and it's just, it's like a, it's like a foreign oppressor that's grueling and governing your life because you thought fullness would look like maxing all of your financial resources out and maybe even cutting corners to gain more. And what you find is a place of emptiness. Some of us experience this in our relationships, maybe even in our marriages, where we go looking for fullness outside of the covenant union that God has given. And what ends up happening is, not, not do we, we might find fullness for a moment, like in the fields of Moab, I'm sure they ate. <laughs> but what ended up happening is that choices had consequences and there was an emptiness there. We find it in, 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 in our, own, our sexual sin at times when we think fullness is gonna look like me experimenting with my sexuality. Fullness is gonna look like me pursuing multiple sexual partners. Fullness is gonna look like me consuming as much pornography as I possibly can. Fullness is gonna look like me having all these experiences. I don't wanna, be, I don't wanna deprive myself, right? That would be unfair. But what we find at the end of that road is that where we thought we would find fullness, we only find emptiness. Where we thought we would receive blessing, all we have is barrenness. Some of us have thought fullness looks like pulling the plug on relationships and running from church to church to church to church as opposed to staying, reconciling and working through things. But what we find at the end of that road as well, is that the fullness we were looking for is very short-lived and it just, it's like water seeping through our hands and we find we're only left empty once again and we have no roots. See, anytime we say, God, I'm gonna do what is, seems right to me because you're not governing and guiding my life, ruling and reigning over me. I'm gonna do what seems right to me. We put ourselves on a path of what appears to be fullness, but ends up in emptiness, what appears to bless, but only leaves us barren. And some of you may be there right now. And I don't wanna leave you there this morning. And so before we close, here's what I wanna say. That while choices have consequences, God has compassion. 
We didn't read it this morning, but in verse six, there's a then. You know that? In verse six, there is a then. Listen to what it says. It says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned to return from the country of Moab, and there's a four. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. When God visits his people, it's either in blessing or in judgment. And God had lifted his hand against them in discipline and now was raising up crops and raising Bethlehem. The house of bread was full of bread once again. She heard that in the fields of Moab. I want you to think about that for a moment. In a day before text messages, in a day before Twitter, in a day before emails, in a day before cell phones, in a day before rotary dial phones, in a day before phones with operators speaking into little tubes, in a day before carrier pigeons and the Pony Express, in a day before the mail system, in a day before airplanes that could overnight stuff, in a day before any kind of mass communication system whatsoever, she in the fields of Moab separated from her people, hears that God had visited. That, my friends, is grace. That's a reminder that God has not forgotten about you, even though you've made a mess of your life by your choices and the consequences that you find yourself sitting in right now. I want you to know that God has compassion. Some of you believe that maybe God has forgotten about you and he's left you to yourself. And I want you to know this morning that when you walk out of here, God has not forgotten about you. He has brought you here this morning to hear that. And the reason you go, well, how do I know God's not forgotten about me? Listen, things don't seem to be getting better. I, I, I trusted Jesus, but now it just made things harder, right? I started giving him 10%. Now I'm more broke than I was before. <laughs> right? I started speaking the truth in relationships, and people started moving away from me. I have less friends than I did before. When I kept my mouth shut. How do you know God's not forgotten about me? Even if I've made a mess of my life by my choices or even as I'm trying to honor God and things are hard and challenging and difficult. Here's how I know God has not forgotten about you because there was another man from Bethlehem. And he did not leave full emptiness looking for fullness. You know what he left? He left fullness to be emptied. In fact, Paul says it that way in Philippians. That he who in the very nature being God, consider not equality with God something to be grasped, but he, what? He empties himself. And this man's name is Jesus. In many years, in ways that Ruth, Orpah, Naomi, Boaz, no one in this story could have foreseen at the time, God would send another man from Bethlehem who would not leave full emptiness looking for fullness, but he left the riches of his father's home. He left all the glories and majesties of the triune God eternally surrounded by the created beings whose wings are covering their feet, faces, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He left the majesty of on high to come and be born in a manger for you to know that God has not forgotten about you even though you've made a mess of your life. Consequences 
come from our choices. Choices have consequences, but God has compassion. And if you're sitting in the consequences of your choices this morning, I want you to know, God, there's a four in your life, and his name is Jesus. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you. I'd love to connect with you after the service. I'll be in room five, which is just outside these glass doors to the left. And if you're sitting in consequences right now, and want to talk about the compassion, the mercy, the tenderness, the forgiveness, the grace of God. We would love to connect with you. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to respond with our voices lifted high to this God who is not forgotten. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you. God, our, the, the words of our mouth, God can never be enough to fully express the gratitude of our hearts <clears throat> for the fact that you have not forgotten. That even though we live in a day and at times in our own individual lives in which we turn from your prescribed <clears throat> promises for blessing and we look for fullness elsewhere places other than you, places other than a dynamic relationship with you through your son, the Lord Jesus, of walking by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience, in love, in loyalty, in affection, and allegiance, even though we turn from that seeking fullness in ways that seem right to us. God, we are grateful that you have not forgotten about us and left us to our sin and our consequences, but that you have had compassion and you have brought us here today to hear it. Father, if there are those in the room this morning who are sitting in their consequences now, I pray that your compassion, that your Holy Spirit, God, it would wash over them, that it would quicken their hearts to believe this truth and they would stand in freedom. No matter how barren their lives have felt, no matter how empty they've become. And Father, for you, those of us in this room this morning who are Christians, I pray, God, that we would not go looking elsewhere. And God, when we face crossroads in life and have to make choices and decisions, not only the big ones that we consider to be big, God, but the small ones that in your eyes are very big as well as we make those choices daily. Father, I pray that we would find fullness in you, that the fruit of your spirit would be born in us, that we'd be loving, patient, kind, gentle, self-controlled, kinds of people because of your work in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.